This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on the podcast on point tonight. Why is the Canadian military working to establish a new organization that would use propaganda and other techniques to try and influence the beliefs and behaviors of you, Canadians? We will talk about that. We'll talk about what free speech actually means to the prime minister and why it can't come with a but. And it matters because right now they are putting rules in to try and regulate online. And we'll talk about social media, the new really the new platform for gang warfare to play out. We'll talk about this new intel for cops and whether or not it can actually stop the carnage. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? I had an opportunity to visit some schools and talk to the principals and vice principals. Uh, they're, they're the ones that uh, are, along with the teachers, of course, and the parents, have made our, cool, our schools uh, safe. Uh, and there, if there was one thing that's working uh, throughout the whole system, I think a lot of things are working, but it's the schools. Uh, they're working, and you have to give credit where credit's due. Hmm? For a guy who's... Always yelling at the gougers, Premier Ford seems off-brand when it comes to paying millions to bonuses to our school execs. Alex Pearson with you back on November 2nd. Here we are, where the gales of November have come early. And uh, they're going to go away and it'll get warm, but man, oh man, if you thought 2020 was not going to deliver winter, I think uh, we have been warned she is actually going to hit us. But of course, uh, not before the kitties got out on the weekend. They had a great time in our neighborhood over uh, Saturday in uh, our hood where there was a little party in the park. And then there, there were actually a few houses that gave out candy, but a lot of people just uh, left it at the end of their driveway. And either way, the kids were thrilled. So, in fact, in the end of the day, we were allowed to and able to salvage, I think, some kind of normal, if not just for a couple of hours. But then, of course, I also knew that there were a lot of private parties. And I think, you know, it's going to be a matter of time before we learn if Halloween like Thanksgiving, has become a big old super spread event. And of course, we won't know that for, I guess, a week. But no, my son did not go out as the prime minister dressed in blackface. He actually had a very uh, cool costume. But uh, uh, but I, I'm sure a few did, including this BC high school student, dressed up as Justin Trudeau, I'm not sure if you heard about this, in blackface. And then, of course, as it happens, the picture gets online, and the school is now reprimanding him, which is, I think, uh, pretty ironic because the guy who actually did the blackface at least three times that he remembers, I mean, he got he got awarded with a re-election. And a teenager who dressed up as Trudeau doing blackface actually got punished. Make sense? I mean, he's stupid for doing it. But it's odd when when people are more offended by the high school kid dressing up as the prime minister who actually did it when he was 29. Okay. Eh? 
I was uh, pretty surprised to hear the Premier's response today when it came to this news over the uh, Toronto District School Board giving principals and VPs $2 million in bonuses because it's not his brand. So I kind of expected, uh, you know, I knew he'd get asked the question. I just, uh, I didn't expect him to be so kind of charitable. But apparently they got paid out because of the unprecedented demands placed on them. And no question, no question. They have enormous pressure. They've got a big task getting all the classes ready, dealing with a bunch of whiny unions and a lot of teacher demands. And, of course, they have to manage safety every day, every second of the day, every second of every day. But the optics the optics are not good. You know, when you're making 130 a year, it is just not a good look when bonuses get paid out, especially as we're figuring out we're not in this together. And, you know, this had to have been known. I mean, it had to have been known that as soon as the unions heard about this, that they were going to get a burn in their knickers. And, and already we're hearing the grumblings, you know, which begs, you know, when, when are they going to start screaming mad that they also deserve more money? That they want pandemic danger pay? Or maybe they're going to refuse to work. I mean, you just know it's coming. And, you know, parents are out there, some of them losing their job by the day in the private sector. And everyone's being asked to do more in these dangerous times. So bonuses, I think, paying out to anyone, it's just not a good look. Unless you're a private company, you can do what you want. But certainly in the public sector, it is not a good look. So I was surprised to see Doug Ford falling off brand. He didn't really okay it. He just didn't come down on it, as we've heard him before. And I think that might be a mistake because, uh, you know, the anger on this thing will be like a virus and it'll just spread. Watching the situation in uh, Vienna right now, it's an ongoing uh, investigation into a series of terror attacks near a um, Vienna synagogue. So we don't know yet the full details. But I, I did want to touch on the prime minister's reaction to the terror attacks in France which happened Thursday. And, you know, his comments were said in French, so at the time didn't get a lot of attention. But over the last couple of days, it's been festering and getting attention all over the world, not because Trudeau struck the right tone. No, no, no. It's because he's being seen, you know, as a flake. Because even when you look at the horrific murder of these three people killed, murdered during prayer, I mean, one of them was a 60-year-old woman who was the second person to be beheaded over these cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. And not even that could compel Justin Trudeau to straight up condemn it, period, if no ands, buts about it. I mean, really? It always has to be punctuated with a but. And it shouldn't be. Because this is as easy as it gets for a Western leader. I mean, France's position on the Prophet Mohammed being published, I mean, Macron has been pretty empirical about it. He says, quote, I'll never accept that someone can justify the use of physical violence because of these cartoons. And so he's, con he's refusing to condemn these illustrations. And Trudeau, his buddy, just can't bring himself to, to stand on the right side of history because he condemns the killings and then he kind of finger wags us with a but, but there's limit. No, there's not. But he said, quote, he said this in French, freedom of expression is not without limits. We do not have the right, for example, to shout fire in a movie theater crowded with people. There are always limits. We owe it to ourselves to act with respect for others and to seek not to arbitrarily or unnecessarily injure those with whom we are sharing a society and a planet. I mean, give me a break. It's a cartoon. But we get the same old mushy, wishy washy crap that we get. I mean, it's a good game he talks, but whether it's China, Russia, or Islamic terrorists 
who get offended over a cartoon. He just bends. He cannot stand up. If he can't stand with Macron, who's a pretty tight ally of his, then who? Who's he going to stand for? What's he going to stand for? And Macron can be pretty, pretty soft. He's like Camembert. He's like the warm version of Camembert. But even, even he is taking a very, very tough stance over this, uh, this issue. And he will, like it or not, defend the use of these cartoons or any religious cartoon, even if it offends us or it's offensive. And Trudeau says he will as well, but then he says, but, 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 but. And I think, you know, keep in mind, this is a guy, this is a prime minister who was photographed not too long ago. It was only 2017. He was at, a, I guess, some kind of Christmas event with his brother. And there they are. They're both wearing these very ugly Christmas sweaters, mocking Jesus Christ, whose head had been replaced by emoticon. Blasphemy, no? No, because he's okay with that freedom of expression. You can mock Christians. Just when it comes to people being slaughtered over cartoons of the prophet, that is where we have to be careful. And this should concern you because, you know, his government is trying to regulate the Internet as we speak, which, um, you know, given his waffling, could very well silence what you say. I mean, maybe he deems that intolerant because there are very clear, you know, different sets of rules when it comes to what's acceptable and what's not. There's always going to be a but. And that's why maybe Mr. Trump next door will win another four years. I don't know. You know, you won't hear that much from him, which has great appeal to many. But um, I'm not sure if I'm imagining it. I don't think I am. But uh, there seems to have been a shift over the weekend on this certainty that we're going to see a blue Biden wave. Because you look at those massive rallies and Trump has been doing swing state uh, visits over the last uh, few days, just hitting one after another in vote rich uh, places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Michigan, all sorts of. And, you know, and now it's not being reported as a landslide for Biden. But it's apparently very close. And so, look, be offended as you want. But no one, I think, should underestimate that Trump could pull this off again. The pundits could be wrong. Wolf Blitzer at CNN could actually cry again. I mean, CNN should just, they should pray that Trump wins. What else are they going to talk about? Are they going to go back to Flight 370 and try to find that? I mean, what else will they talk about? Because they won't talk about Biden. But we'll have you covered. And, um, you know, massive voting numbers, 100 million already voting so far. I mean, you can imagine, should Trump win? You know, should Biden win the popular vote? And and Trump wins the electoral vote? I mean, heads will explode everywhere. Because uh, popularity doesn't matter. It comes down to the electoral vote. And I think a lot of people are going to hold their nose and vote for Trump because a lot of people just can't stomach, uh, you know, the very kind of very socialist left-leaning Biden ticket. They just can't. So we will wait and see. And um, I think a lot of people think that COVID will 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 go against Trump. And I don't know. There was a pretty explosive piece out of The New York Times. And it confirms what I think a lot of people suspected about China and this very cozy relationship with the WHO. And that is when you look back to February, they went through it. Dr. Michael Ryan, he's one of the uh, he's the seemingly competent guy there. But he's with he's the emergency director of the WHO. And he was pushing back in February. He said, we have to get to the source. If We don't find the source. We're going to get hit again. So he and a a team went over to Beijing. They were going to get in there, source this thing out. Now we learn or the New York Times has learned that the WHO's leadership had already quietly negotiated that, uh, you know, terms that would sideline their own experts. They would not question China's initial response. 
and they would not be allowed to visit the live animal market in the city of Wuhan, where the outbreak seems to have originated. And so look, we're now nine months into this thing, a million people around the world dead, and still zero transparency, zero independence when it comes to an investigation into this source. So if there's, you know, any, any wonder why there's so much distrust about what we're hearing about this virus and these experts, there you go. And we're still, by the way, taking advice from the WHO every single day. Dr. Tam, that's, those are her colleagues. She's going to keep taking it from them. And they have proved over and over again that they are either inept or just not trustworthy. This next one's kind of like a page out of 1984, but I guess maybe this is just how it's done. But the National Post uh, has put a new piece forward that's uh, pretty eye-raising, and it reveals that the Canadian forces uh, want to create this new organization that will use propaganda and other techniques to try and influence the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors of Canadians. And apparently this is something that the Liberals started pushing for back in 2015, they have yet to sign off on this officially, but uh, what they would do is weaponize and expand military propaganda capabilities and information warfare. And David Pugliese is the reporter on this and says that the New Defense Strategic Communication Group wants to advance Canada's national interests by using defense activities, which will allow them to then analyze and collect information from social media accounts of you, uh, non-governmental organizations, and of course, us in the news media all to, uh, I guess, influence. And apparently this has already been tested. It happened earlier in the spring when the Canadian Military Intelligence Unit was uh, found to be mining for data. And that was when the military was called into long-term care homes in the spring. And they looked at uh, what we would post on social media platforms about the Ford government's failure to take care of the elderly, which was then handed over to the province to warn of public reactions if they were negative. Now, they see nothing wrong with it because we are the ones who put it out there. Christian Luprecht is a professor over at the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University fellow also over at the uh, Macdonald Laurier Institute. Good to have you, Christian. Oops, do we have a uh, Christian? Hello, good evening. Oh, there you are. Hi, hi, hi. All right. Um, so when I when I read this story, my eyebrow got stuck in an upward cocked position and it hasn't come down yet. Uh, I mean, look, I have to think there are privacy issues here now, or is this normal? So I think this needs to be considered in context. So there's a couple of dimensions here. One is that I've long advocated that the government of Canada, like other governments, for instance, in Australia, the United Kingdom, in the U.S., uh, needs an open source intelligence collection center because it tells you a whole lot about what's going on in society and it raises precisely the concerns that you've raised. So we should be doing it in a transparent fashion and we should be doing it with appropriate oversight and review and making sure that all the appropriate legalities and constitutional sort of requirements are being met. But you can bet, of course, that the bad guys are collecting open source intelligence um, and there's a lot to be learned. So uh, I think, you know, it's our government needs to be in this game as well. But uh, uh, the military is particularly concerned about possible, I think, especially domestically, uh, say, say you had a major attack. Say you had, for instance, a major cyber attack on uh, a downtown infrastructure that sort of takes out your communications, that takes out um, your key electricity, hydro or so. 
uh, and an adversary would then try to spread all sorts of misinformation in order to sow chaos among the population in this very difficult circumstance. This is the sort of situation that I think the Kenyan Armed Forces is concerned about. How do you counter this type of dis and misinformation when an adversary is deliberately trying to influence your population in an effort, for instance, uh, to sow chaos, to cause an uprising, whatever it might be. So this is less about the Canadian Armed Forces uh, proactively, offensively somehow using these capabilities against the Canadian population and more understanding how they might need to deploy them in an effort to defend the Canadian population from hostiles and adversaries looking to capitalize on perhaps a coordinated attack, uh, cyber attack on Canada to sow, uh, to sow chaos and undermine the democratic institutions of this country. Okie doke. Uh, so David Pugliese um, said that earlier this spring, uh, the military had planned a propaganda campaign, which would have aimed at heading off civil disobedience during this pandemic. And so what they did was plan a campaign using similar propaganda tactics to those that we um, employed against the Afghan people during that war. And that would include loudspeaker trucks transmitting government messages. And this thing was halted after concerns were raised about the ethics behind such te- uh, techniques, which uh, like you think, I mean, that to me sounds like we're, we're in a George Orwell like nightmare. Yeah, and I think these are tough to negotiate for the armed forces because they do constant threat assessments and they try to prepare for what might the government ask the Canadian armed forces to do in a particular circumstance, um, particularly in a circumstance, for instance, where communications is no longer available, is only available very selectively, and the armed forces are called upon in some sort of deployment, not just to, for instance, help with the, uh, uh, with the virus, but also uh, to reassure the Canadian population or to have to counter some sort of hoax or whatever that was planted by an adversary. And so uh, how to navigate this terrain um, and to make sure you do it legally and constitutionally is Mm -hmm. very difficult. And that's why it's so important to exercise these capabilities to make sure that when they are, uh, if they ever did need to be deployed, that it is all done entirely according to policy and to procedure. But as you can see, this is also hugely controversial with the Canadian population. So there's probably an opportunity here for the Department of National Defense Uh, to be much more transparent with the Canadian public and more forthcoming in terms of why these capabilities are required, how exactly they would be deployed, and what sort of safeguards and constraints are in place to ensure that these are being used uh, to advance uh, Canadian values and Canadian democracy and not undermine them, as the story gives the impression um, uh, could be the possibility here. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, uh, I get that. Yeah, you, ha- you know, twenty twenty, we've got to be prepared for these things. That wars aren't always fought in the in the deserts and in the Middle East and and on war fields. I mean, this is happening online. I think where you start, where I start, certainly getting uncomfortable with it is this this these quotes and these um, references to influencing the public. Like, who are they talking about? And, and are they trying to influence Canadians, or are they trying to do their exercises on Canadians to attack an enemy? So uh, both capabilities are at play here. So one is that uh, in many of the conflicts that we're involved today, for instance, if you think about Latvia, uh, where you're facing asymmetric um, uh, capabilities by the Russians on a regular basis, looking to undermine the Canadian mission and where the Canadian armed forces and the deployment and the, uh, the joint brigades there um, are constantly have to counter uh, Russian attempts to send uh, misinformation um, that is intended to uh, 
undermine the legitimacy of the mission in general and of the Canadian uh, leadership of that particular mission in particular. Conversely, then, in Canada, you might find yourself in a situation uh, where the Canadian... Now, if we found ourselves in the circumstances where the minister would call on the Canadian Armed Forces to intervene with the capabilities that you just laid out, right. you could imagine that we would be in pretty dire straits. But ultimately, when it comes then to the Canadian Armed Forces, it means... Uh, that all other capabilities in Canada have been exhausted in order to ensure public safety. And so if the Canadian uh, Armed Forces don't have these capabilities available, it might mean that in the end, um, mission possible mission failure for the Canadian Armed Forces in terms of protecting both the sovereignty and the safety uh, of Canada and of Canadians. And so uh, these are difficult capabilities to build. It probably suggests there's a lot more conversation, public conversation to be had. Uh, but at the same time, it's probably capability that we cannot do without in the 21st century, given the threat spectrum and the threat vectors uh, that Canada is exposed to. Yeah, and the Liberals did outline this in their 2017 defense strategy policy. But uh, again, uh, you know, they want to do all this propaganda information warfare. You have to have the trust of the people. And I just cannot see in this day and age, especially, uh, you know, with fake news and all the rest of it, that um, that they're going to get that kind of... Um, that kind of trust. I just want to quickly, before I let you go, Christian, obviously we don't have a lot uh, on this uh, situation in Vienna with this terror attack that is said to uh, at least two dead, 15 injured. Those numbers not um, solid right now. It could be worse. It could be hopefully better. But do you know anything about what this attack is other than the fact that it's still ongoing and it seems very organized? Well, Austrian authorities have made a point of that this looks to them coordinated and professional in the way it was carried out, um, given that there appears to be at least uh, six different sites and multiple individuals involved. Uh, this sounds a little bit like a Paris Bataclan 2015 yeah. type of uh, scenario. Um, and the fact that Austrian authorities have already told the population to stay home for Tuesday and they've mm -hmm. canceled schools uh, suggests that uh, this, they're concerned that this might be an ongoing search and uh, the military has been deployed uh, to protect uh, key sites in Vienna so it suggests that this is uh, and th this is uh, as, as utmost in uh, an emergency um, as the Austrian authorities could possibly imagine um, and concern that the uh, threat certainly is not yet contained and, and is, is it my imagination or our imagination that we are getting more of these attacks or were they ignored during COVID or is this, uh, is this a new surge? Um, we'll have to see what exactly is behind this. Uh, the fact that Austrian authorities came out very quickly and suggested this is a terrorist attack uh, indicates that perhaps they had some intelligence that something like this might have been coming. Um, and so this sort of indicates that perhaps the authorities were already... Um, right prepared uh, for this. Vienna, of course, is a very international city with uh, both UN and other international installations. Um, and so it'll, be, it'll have to be seen what exactly the objective and the aim of the attack was uh, and who the perpetrators are and what particular political message they were hoping to send uh, or intending to send uh, with this heinous crime. Yeah. We'll uh, stay on that. Uh, Christian, always appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for your time. Always generous with it. Thank you. 
right now, time to dig between the headlines where we always get these nice little juicy news nuggets that often get kind of overshadowed by all the COVID and all the Trump and all the other stuff. But they shouldn't because they actually do, in fact, matter. And no one does it better than our friends over at Black Locks Reporting. Tom Korski is the managing editor who does a lot of the digging himself. It is good to have you, Tom. Thank you, Alex. I was just listening to question period because that's how I roll uh, earlier today and a lot on the whole freedom of speech issue with the prime minister and uh, opposition obviously going after his response or lack thereof when it came to those French terror attacks. And, uh, you know, Trudeau said he defends our freedom of speech, but which is which you can't say when you defend freedom of speech. This is an issue that might dog him. You know, freedom of speech is a very uh, it's one of those issues that a lot of Canadians, let alone members of cabinet, have trouble with. It implies, and this was cabinet that wrote this into the Constitution, it implies speech that nobody likes. Mm -hmm. That's why you have to protect it from government regulation. You don't have to shield polite speech or positive statements or things that make people feel good. The answer to speech that you don't like, I don't like, is not to listen to it. That's not really the issue. The issue is, does the government have a right to regulate speech that you don't like so no one else can listen to it? That's a, not a fine point in law. That's the supreme law of our country. That's the Constitution. And yet, a lot of members of cabinet really struggle with that, Alex. Yeah, and I know that they've been pushing for internet regulation and these kinds of things, and that was, I think, supposed to come up uh, today if it did not. Uh, but they are, they are. I think if Trudeau could get away with it, I, I do think he would put a butt in it. You know, he said, you can't go into a movie theater and yell fire. Well, no, you can't, but you can and should be able to publish cartoons of Jesus Christ, the Prophet Muhammad, or anybody else, uh, you know, in this country. And that should be defended by every politician, let alone leader. You know that old analogy, if you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, that's an American uh, jurisprudence. It's an old uh, American judge in the United States Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, a 19th century man, a Civil War veteran, who made that comment that is famously recited by people when they would like to curb free speech. Civil War veteran, Alex, long before the Internet. There's something about the Internet that really irritates cabinet to no no small degree they've been uh, regulation of the internet has washed up every decade since 1995 in Ottawa cuz it's about control internet is uncontrolled speech forget about hate speech and the rest of it criminal code the police are on top of that that's not what this is about this is about cabinet control as you mentioned on the uh, order paper that's noticed that's given to Parliament is amendments to the Broadcasting Act by the Minister of Heritage, Steve Shebo. He's been very cagey when asked exactly what's in there. We know that they have mused about uh, mandatory registration of Internet news media subject to a code of conduct. Mm -hmm. You think about the implications of that. You know, newspapers are not regulated. They don't have to register. What they print in their editorial and comic page is nobody's business. If you don't want to read it, don't buy the paper. But cabinet comes back, and successive cabinets have, they come back to this point over and over that they have to save Canadians from themselves. Right. I know it's 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 a very very um, 
it's a very slippery slope. And I just think if people understand how quickly you can pick up speed on that slope, uh, how dangerous it is, but uh, no question about it. I think there are more questions to ask on it. I do want to ask you about this cabinet crackdown on this issue about paid leave for federal employees who are neither sick, um, but uh, who are neither sick and, and not working for home. Um, and apparently a human rights grievance has been, grievance has been filed by the largest of the public sector unions because the treasury board is basically saying to these employees, look, you've got to actually be sick not to show up for work, which they find offensive. They say uh, this is uh, Public Service Alliance of Canada has filed two grievances. They state, look, at this is under our collective agreement. You offered it to us back in March. Both of those things are true. And we think it's unfair that you take it back now. Why would this be a conflict now, you would say, into seven months of the pandemic? Because the costs are simply galloping. We estimate them at a billion dollars a year. The budget office in August put them at over $800 million. These are not pie-in-the-sky figures. These are calculations. We have to sort of make a guesstimate because the Treasury Board won't say how much this has cost. Over a third of federal employees took leave. As you mentioned, this is not sick leave. These are people who are not sick, and they're not working from home. When the pandemic came along, you recall the big panic in March. Everyone had to stay home who could stay home. They were told so by the prime minister. And there were leaves offered by managers to federal employees. If you had parenting issues, you live with someone at home who's subject to, uh, you know, at high risk of illness. Uh, if if you were unable to work from home for various issues, if you're a crop inspector in rural Manitoba, you're not going to be able to work from home. The internet service is terrible. <laughs> and they offered this leave as a stopgap measure. Well, here we are seven months in. And the costs are some $1 billion to taxpayers, and that's all borrowed money. Even the Treasury Board said, my goodness, this <laughs> that's expensive. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to curb it effective next week, saying, look, at take use your sick leave or other paid benefits, vacation days, but we have to stop this. And now they've got a fight on their hands. Yeah, that's nuts to suggest like uh, that they're wrong for saying, hey, look, Use your sick days and your short time leave first before you then start taking from it. I mean, who would get away with this in the private sector? Nobody. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And uh, we always say, Alex, you know, there are two economies. There's cabinet's perception of the economy. And there's the real economy. And the real economy, these are statistics. Most people work for small business. That's a small business with uh, fewer than 50 employees. A very high number of Canadians in the workforce work for companies that have fewer than five employees. That's mom and pop. Mm -hmm. And they have to work. They don't have the choice to stay home because if they stay home, they'll starve. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's the majority of the economy. Canada is a nation of shopkeepers, proudly so. And so there's not a lot of, um, if this was more widely reported, there's not a lot of sympathy for uh, federal employees when you hear, regardless of however perilous their circumstances, the average leave now is 60 hours not working and not working from home and completely healthy, 60 paid hours on the civil service work week. That's uh, more than a week and a half, almost two weeks. Mm -hmm. They leave on average at a cost of a billion dollars. It's got to stop somewhere. I mean, the, the country is, you know, the finances are berserk. Not, not to mention, you've got businesses that still haven't even gotten that aid package that was supposed to be done three weeks ago. It's just insulting. And, and when we say we are all in this together, Tom, it is very obvious.
that we are not. Um, but yes, we will talk about it because you guys report it, so I appreciate it. Um, I got to go, but Tom, we will talk post-election and see maybe what uh, comes up after Trump. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Alex. All right. Thanks, Tom. That is Tom Korski. The magazine is Blacklock's Reporting. They are a subscription-based uh, mag out of Ottawa worth every single penny. Well, we talked about this uh, a little bit on the show, whether social media is the new tool for gangs, you know, to play out their turf wars. And is it a tool then that police can use to finally hunt them down and get them off our streets? Sam Pisano, a Toronto Sun reporter who retired, has come back again, and uh, he's got a pretty great uh, report out that according to the cops, gangbangers are in fact using social media to call out other gang members. They uh, send messages to their followers, which then incites violence. And that would include a 31-year-old rapper who's been wanted by Toronto police since August. And they allege he told his 3,000 Instagram followers to, quote, shoot everyone in Toronto's Regent Park. And now cops say he's put up another video that cops allege appears to promise revenge for that daylight murder of fellow rapper Houdini, who you may recall was uh, shot down in uh, broad daylight at a really busy intersection in Toronto where a child with his mother was almost struck by one of the bullets. And of course, what prompted that? An insult again on social media that prompted uh, more gang crime. And you will recall last week we had the sentencing in the case involving a gangbanger who went out and shot up a playground where two young girls were caught. Again, what prompted that? an insult on social media. So apparently this is a thing, but I do think it's an opportunity to be used as intelligence. I want to bring Nick, who's an expert from uh, Star Quality Investigations. You are um, you were with police for uh, 30 years in the GTA. You're a retired detective now, but you are, were specializing in drug and cyber crime for a long time. And now you do private investigation work. What do you make of this new phenomenon and, and how new is it? Uh, thanks, Alex, for having me on. And to answer your question, it really is not a new thing. Um, uh, I think police services in uh, Ontario, for sure, and, and most of Canada and the United States have seen this type of uh, incidents play out more often than not, unfortunately. And I think that comes with um, uh, many factors, but one of the largest ones is notoriety. Um, you know, and without dating myself too much and without using the phrase back in the day all the time, there used to be those street corner incidents where you stepped on my running shoes and then there was a fight. Now, it's, right. you know, it's almost progressed to that insult being on social media and social network sites that inflames and that, um, you know, provides the fuel for the violence that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I'll say back in the day, because it was back in the day. I mean, you would show, you know, go into gang, um, you know, rival territory, you'd show your colors, you know, but when you've got a weapon, this new weapon of choice, social media, you've got far, far greater reach. I mean, it's endless. And, and but the consequences can be even more severe. And where I see the difficulty um, uh, for policing and, uh, and those that are now tackled with these type of investigations is trying to identify someone by their username uh, and then put them to a real person. So from my experience, you know, on the virtual side of things, um, you can be whoever you are behind a keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty is finding that real person attributing what they're saying to a real person to then uh, tie it to evidence. 
Right. Okay. I mean, look, it, no, it's no secret that this is a, we're on pace for a record year across the GTHA. We're at 100, uh, 409 shootings right now. Uh, in 2019, there were 492 shootings. But really what has changed, and I think you'll agree, is there's no boundary with these gang fights. They don't care when it happens. They don't care where. They don't care any time of day. I mean, they will take it where they need to take it. And, and collateral damage be damned. A hundred percent. And we are spiraling seems downwards uh, where uh, these events happen in areas that are, um, you know, where you wouldn't suspect them to be on mm. Peter streets uh, um, during the daylight outside of condos and Airbnb uh, rental locations um, where you never really thought this would happen. And, and unfortunately it's become a common uh, commonplace. Right. And the bottom line is that they're out there on social media, either to intimidate or offer a challenge. Um, but it is an interesting tool. We don't see the use of carding anymore. And it's obviously uh, debatable. And I think a lot. And there are some people who still believe that we're at a loss without that kind of intelligence because uh, gangbangers have been emboldened. They can walk around with their weapons and not worry about being, um, you know, taken out or caught with it. But I do think that this is a has, has to have a lot of value as far as investigative um, intel for the cops no i mean your, your sex crime the toronto sex crimes unit had unbelievable success just from studying backgrounds pieces of tape hours long of, of victims in cases and they were able to solve an awful lot of crimes and and the use uh, and you're correct in your statement that the the use of this type of information commonly called open source intelligence or, or SOCMIT is another uh, acronym for social media intelligence. Uh, law enforcement uh, is using these type of, are uh, using these social networks to gain that intelligence. It is, um, I wouldn't call it a form of carding, but it is definitely a form of intelligence. The difficulty will be, as you mentioned, that anybody in the world can comment and be in interacting with someone on uh, a social network platform. It's trying to drill down those people commenting about an event to say they're specifically part or lead to a group of people that might be involved in an incident. Albeit, come court time, if you do manage to get one of these guys or gals, I mean, it is a great piece of, of evidence. And, and what uh, law enforcement does, and, and they will continue to do, is they have to remember that um, seizing the device that that uh, that communicated or posted the information, that's that loop of evidence that needs to be closed out. Um, as people share social media accounts, um, that's where you come into the problem where someone goes into custody and they hand off the phone to some of the other people in the group and that group continues to post. Uh, is making sure you can tie back that information to an individual or group of people. Right, which would then make them also guilty of uh, being part of a crime. I mean, you'd be charged as an accessory, if I'm uh, correct. But what then responsibility um, would the social media companies have? And could this be an educational tool to, you know, go out there as we get more educated on sex crimes? You know, if you pass around uh, child pornography, you can be, you know, you could be charged with a crime. You know, if people understand that there's maybe a consequence to this, uh, you know, could that be could that be helpful? Even if you take it out out of the realm of violence, and we're seeing it now where social network platforms are um, blocking content as misinformation, disinformation, um, 
within the context of what's the power of freedom of speech. It's a difficult road for social network platforms to then be the oversight uh, or overseer of what's commented uh, in the rap videos. And uh, the challenge will be, well, well, what is uh, freedom of artistic impression versus a crime? Right. right. Um, and that will be the challenge when it comes to monitoring the activity. It's not an arbitrary thing. Uh, I think most people in the general public will agree that it's not arbitrary for the police to start monitoring these accounts for that activity, for that connection, as opposed to maybe the challenge of what carding was in the past, where you just walk down the street and the police, you know, rolled up on you and asked you questions. This is a little bit different because you're the police are there for a pointed purpose. Social networking and, and those type of platforms um, will have a difficult time as they are in this present day of trying to um, monitor and push down this kind of comment. Right. It's I'll a be struggle it. that um, I think most people will understand it's going to be difficult. Yeah, it will. I mean, there is freedom of speech and then there's hate speech or, or inciting violence, which falls into a different category. But then, OK, what's a guy like Drake getting the key to the city? You know, he's a rapper. He's been connected to a number of these shootings, uh, colleagues of his or friends of his. At some point, um, those in charge around the city should probably say, you know what, if you're not going to speak out about this, you know, and you can't get rid of your street cred, you don't you don't deserve the honor of being you know, given the key to a city like Toronto. And for uh, for Drake, if, if you use him in a, as an example and some of the other um, key people who are who are out front in these communities, they need to step forward and change yeah. the way um, that they glamorize this type of uh, these type of events. Because if you even go back to the 80s and the 90s of um, of uh, Biggie Smalls and mm-hmm. the other rappers that were. That 50 cents who were glamorizing being shot 10, 15 times. Um, uh, there's enough incidents just within the greater Toronto area where people did things specifically just to get notoriety for their rap album. Um, and, and people and those that are in the front need to, to do their part to try and um, push down and quell this kind of violence. Well, we'll see if uh, those in charge, like the John Tories and uh, Doug Fords, call them out. But um, it's going to take a lot of action and no more talk on this. I appreciate your insight into this, Nick. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Alex. Nick is a retired uh, police detective now with Star Quality Private Investigations. So there you go. Get some insight into a world that we're starting to learn more and more about. You, of course, can catch us Monday through Friday live at 6.30 to 10. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.